will please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. We'll be looking at this entire chapter today. This chapter is often called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. It's called that because this is a prayer that Jesus is praying for his people as their priest, as their intercessor. And so we're going to look at this prayer and the things that Jesus prays for. Before we do that, let's ask the Lord for help with it. Lord Jesus, you prayed this prayer many hundreds of years ago, but it still has bearing in our life today. It still has authority over us because you said it, and you are our God and our Creator, our Redeemer, our Lord. And so we pray that as we open it, as we read from it, that you would use it to convict our hearts of sin, that you would use it to instruct us in the way that we should go as we see your kingdom go forward in this community, in this world, and that you would use it so that we might be strengthened, that we might be encouraged in our faith, that we might see the things that you would have for us as your people, that you have prayed for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, this week we start back to school and we'll be around all different kinds of students and all these different kinds of students have different needs and desires. We got to meet some of them uh, last Thursday and that was all, that's always fun to meet them while they still think it's summer. Um, these different kinds of students have different work ethics and they have different expectations of their teachers and all these different things that they bring into the classroom with them. But one thing that will unite them and unites all of us to some degree, is our desire to live up to some sort of expectation in our lives. Usually put there by our parents, but not necessarily our parents, but some sort of expectation that we have, that we think we need to live up to. I think even with our parents, you think about it, even many of us as older children, we with older parents, we still have this understanding of what our parents expect out of us and how we measure up to that. And in a perfectly healthy situation, these two things would always align, right? The parents would have reasonable expectations and the child would have no objection to those. That'd be a perfectly healthy situation of which I don't believe I've ever seen. Uh, we know this isn't always the case. Parents sometimes have, on both ends of the spectrum, they have no expectations of their children. It's a sad thing. They have no expectations. They really don't care what their kids are doing. Or they have completely unreasonable expectations of their children. Almost just as sad. And children sometimes either fight against whatever expectation their parents have, which is pretty normal, rebellious, or they try so desperately to please their parents, they end up stressed out and depressed before they're 20 years old. And I see that a lot in school as well. Parents and children are just one aspect of this, of course. We have expectations on us from someone. All of us do. We all have some sort of expectation put upon us, and we all choose at which level we're going to respond to that. And one thing we can all agree on, I think, is that we wish that those expectations of us would always be very perfectly clear, so there's no misunderstanding so that everyone will just get along. I think we all understand that. 
And so in this passage today, Jesus addresses the expectations that he has for his church. But differently, he does this differently than he's done in the past. In the past, he's commanded his disciples or the people to do certain things. He has instructed them on the law, on what God requires of them. Jesus, being God, is well within his right to do that, to instruct us, to command us as to what his expectations are. But in this passage, his expectations of the church take the form of a prayer, which makes it a completely different thing, because prayer is what he is asking the Father to do on our behalf. And these things, and these are things that will come to pass, even in spite of us, the ones that he prayed for. So this is what he wants for his church. It's a good way to look at this passage. And we should never lack clarity when it comes to what Jesus desires for his church because more than any chapter in Scripture, I think we have that plainly spelled out for us here. Jesus goes into great detail as he prays for himself, his own glory, his disciples, and those who are far off, the future church, or us. And so as we look at this text, I want to consider those three categories. Jesus' prayer for God's glory, Jesus' prayer for the disciples, and then his prayer for the church. And so with that, let's stand together as we read the text, John chapter 17 in its entirety. John chapter 17, starting at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them, and have come to know in the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. I am praying for them, and I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction." that scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, that, 
that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for, for, they, for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these things only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. And in them and you in me, and they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and I love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. And so with this text, this is the culmination of Jesus' address to the disciples. After this, we're going to have a lot of narrative where Jesus is arrested, crucified, dead, buried. We have a lot of story about to happen. And so this is the end of Jesus' long addresses. And so we do well to take some time with it. For a quick review, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He's getting ready to give himself up for arrest again. This is going to lead to his crucifixion. Notice he says there at the beginning that his hour has come. He lets us know this in the text. This idea of the hour coming has been with us all throughout the book of John. It's been there right since the beginning. And now it is finally here. And He's been preparing his disciples all along with words of comfort, words of the coming Holy Spirit, and they still seem lost. They still seem to be wrestling with this idea. Even though in the last, last week we talked about how they finally seem to get it, Jesus quickly reminds them that they'd soon leave him. Because it was about to get pretty tense. They were all going to get afraid. They were all going to bolt. <coughs> and you remember he told Peter, what was Peter going to do? He was going to den- deny him three times. Judas has left. He's gone. And by now, he's gathering a mob to come and arrest Jesus. So the end really is coming. It's just about over. All of this swirling around, Jesus begins to pray. And I think it's fascinating that Jesus kneels to pray in this situation with all of this stuff going on in his life. And I think we do well to do that in our own lives. Jesus prayed when he was stressed, when those around him were stressed. Jesus, of course, had the power to bring down the heavens on his would-be tormentors, yet he looked up to the heavens and prayed. We have no power. We're not Jesus 
yet we still try to fix things with our worry and our stress. Two things that are completely powerless and unable to do anything. Jesus prays, and I think so should we more often than we do. And the things that Jesus prays for, though these things are unique to Jesus, we can't pray for our own glory, for instance, or that our people would be saved because we don't have a people. But there is much that we can gather from this. And so again, I think it helps us to understand what our Savior desires for us as his church and that we will have because of this prayer. To that end, it is not just his desires for the church, but it is the promises for the church. And let's look at this prayer in that way. And so Jesus first prays for God's glory. He says, Father, the hours come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This verse is a fantastic verse for explaining the deity of Christ to someone. If someone ever says to you, where in Scripture does Jesus say that he's God? Take them here to John chapter 17 and show them what Jesus prays here. How do we know that? Well, first of all, God doesn't simply share his glory with just anyone. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42, please. Isaiah chapter 42 is one of the first servant passages in the book of Isaiah that's directly referring to our Lord Jesus. And I'm going to read verses 5 through 8 here. And concerning, concerning the prayer that we just read from Jesus, consider that in the back of your minds as we read through this. Verses 5 through 8 of Isaiah 42. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, and from the prison those who sit in darkness. This is about our Lord Jesus. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Who does he share his glory with? No one but himself. And so for Jesus to say, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, he makes it clear to us that he is praying that God would glorify him as God the son. The father gives glory to the son because he, the son, is God. Look at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Can a mere man say that? The glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is not the words of a created being. This is the words of God Almighty. 
No one but God has authority over all flesh. No one but God has the authority to give anyone eternal life. And so if Jesus isn't God, then this section of Scripture is just wrong. We should throw it out if he's not God. And since we agree that Scripture in its entirety is correct, then we believe that Jesus Jesus is God. And this separates us from cults like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, but this also separates us from liberal Christianity, which claims that Jesus was just a moral rebel rouser, said some good things, but really didn't have any power to set to hold over them, and that our religion is just like any others. No. If this is true, then that's not true. He is the God of the Old and New Testaments. He will get the glory not only in this life, but in his death and his resurrection. And note, again, that he's been given authority over all flesh. He's been given authority to give eternal life. He's been given authority to give a particular people salvation. This matches up with the rest of our study through John, 1 through 16, right? says much the same. To all whom you have given him. To all whom you have given him. Turn to John 6 with me real quick. I want to show you some similar language here. John 6, starting at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Who is that that he's going to give eternal life? Who is that that he's going to raise up on the last day? Those that the Father has given him. Look at verses 44 through 47. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except for he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. All of those the Father has given to me, they will come to me. The Father will draw those to himself. Matthew one twenty one. you can turn there if you want. What did Jesus say, or what did the, the angel say to Mary? He is going to come to save his people from their sins. Who are his people? Those that the Father has given him. The only other explanation for this, for this concept in Scripture, other than human sovereignty, if humans have autonomy and if humans have their own sovereignty, then we can, we can do some stuff with this. But the only other explanation for this is that everyone is saved. And we know that that isn't the case. We know that everyone isn't the people of God. And so he saves a particular people for himself. God has a particular people for himself. Jesus came to save them. He has the authority to give them eternal life. And then he goes on. And this is eternal life. That they know you. The one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
This is reiterating what we already knew about eternal life. It isn't earned by any merit that we have, but simply by knowing the Savior, a relationship that He initiates with me. That is eternal life. There's no way to add anything to salvation without adding something to this verse, which we know we shouldn't do. If we want to add requirements to salvation, then they are from man, not from God. This is real simple. To know him, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And so here in this first portion of Jesus' prayer, we are reminded that he gets the glory for the work that he came to do. It has nothing to do with us, other than the fact that we are the objects of his affection and we are those whom he came to save. He alone has the authority to offer eternal life, and he does that for those whom the Father has drawn to himself. There is no injustice here. Make sure we understand that. There is no injustice. He saves a particular people for himself, only mercy and grace. If you can find a group of people that deserve salvation, and any one of those is not saved, then there's injustice. There are none that deserve salvation. For him to save one is mercy and grace. So the next, Jesus' prayer for his disciples. So next, Jesus prays specifically for his disciples, those 11 men who are there with him. We know this because of the things that he says here, what he prays for them next. He's going to, these are ones that he has taken out of the world, taken out of darkness into light, a common theme in the book of John. Remember, Jesus came as the light, and his light was the light of men. The light drives out the darkness of the world. And so those that he has called to himself immediately saw this light and were drawn to him. Why didn't everyone believe? Because they're still stuck in darkness. Jesus regularly interacted with lots of people whom he shared the gospel with directly who did not believe. But these disciples were called out of that darkness by him who calls and someone and everyone whom he calls listens. He called them. They left their lives behind to follow him. And so now he prays for them, saying that he has given them the words to say as they go back into the world that he has taken them out of. And as, he, and as they go into the world, notice what he prays for them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. It's verse, verse 10, or verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Keep them in your name, that they may be one a work that Jesus has been doing while he was with them. But now he is leaving. He says, verse 12, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled. Who is this? Who, who was lost? Judas. This is the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled. But for the rest of them, Jesus has kept them safe. He has guarded them. But now... Jesus is getting ready to leave. 
And what has he told us at the end of verse, our chapter 16? What are the disciples getting ready to do? Flee. Run away. And so what is the prayer to the Holy Father in heaven? Preserve them. Keep them safe. Keep them in your name that they may be one. Consider this. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved other than the name of Jesus. Keep them in that name that they will not be divided. Consider the problems in the early church. What are the problems that we see in the book of Acts? What's the idea? Well, men have to be circumcised in order to be saved. But only the name of Jesus saves. That would attempt to divide the church. Keep them in your name so that they might be one. They have to proclaim the name of Jesus. They have to call others to call upon that name in order to be saved. And I want us to notice here, for the disciples, he doesn't pray that they would be taken out of the world. He could. He could have prayed that. Imagine if that's what Christianity was, be saved and then immediately be taken up to heaven. Wouldn't that be incredible? It would be awesome. But that's not what he prays for us. That's not what he wants for us. Because we need to finish the work that we've been called to. We can't finish that if we are not here in the world. Jesus wants us in the world. He wants the disciples in the world. They're not of the world. They're not of the world, meaning they do not belong to the world. But they are in it. And so since they are in it, what is his prayer for them? Verse 17. They are not of the world, just as I am not in the wor- of the world. 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So since they don't belong to the world, since they are in the world and needing to do ministry in the world, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. There at the end, verse 18, as you have sent me to the world, so I send them to the world, 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. I set myself apart so that they may be sanctified in the truth. That they may be holy in this truth of his word. And again, though this is here, for the, this is prayed for the 11 apostles that are here. There's a lot that we can learn from this. How does Jesus plan to help his disciples as they walk in the world, as they deal with unbelief, as they preach the gospel? He plans that they would be sanctified, that they would be made more and more holy, and that they would come to this by the word of God. The only truth that we can trust. This is our source of truth as Christians. Our continued source of truth and our continued source of life in a dying world is the word of God. And through it, we are sanctified so that we can do what we've been called to do from here on out. For the disciples, what did they know? They knew that their faith, that they they would have to die because of their faith. For us, we probably won't have to. That's good. But we know that the world doesn't hate us any less 
And why do they hate us? Again, not because of us. Hopefully it's not because of any wrong we've done to them. We don't want that. We should love the world. But they hate us because they hate their Creator. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is their God, and they refuse to bow to Him. Yet this is the message that we have. Repent and believe. And so we are sanctified as Christians in this truth. We are made more and more holy through the Word of God, and it's this Word that we have to give to a dying world. And that brings us to his last section, his prayer for the church. He not only prays for this for them, but for us. And how do we know? Well, look there at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. What's Jesus' plan for the disciples? To write this stuff down. That others may hear it. That others may know. For those who believe in me through their word, what does Paul say? Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. This is how faith is developed. Some of the apostles wrote down the word of God as given to them by the Holy Spirit, and it's only through that word that we find salvation. Salvation isn't found out in the woods by seeing God in every little thing. It's found in the scriptures alone. We need to be careful with that. And his prayer is that we would be one, like the Father and Son are one, so that the world might believe. You see that over and over in this last section. Will the world know when they see a divided church? Will the world believe when they see a church that hates itself? Can God be divided? No, therefore his church can't be divided. Now, this isn't a verse against denominations, and I'm going to be careful with that. Denominations are good things. We kind of categorize ourselves into groups that kind of believe similar things, but I know that I can go with my friends who go to the Baptist church or the Methodist church that are true believers, and we believe the basic things about the faith that we profess this morning, like in the Apostles' Creed. We agree on those things. We may not agree on the details, but we are unified in the truth of Scripture. We all settle on those things. And so this isn't a verse against denominations, but this is a passage to remind us, again, that there is one God that we believe in and one Son who was sent to offer us one salvation. And we share that with all true believers. Those who parade some different kind of gospel are not part of this fellowship that we have with Christ and other believers. Any kind of gospel that is different than the one that we've been taught in the scriptures is a false gospel. And Paul says that anyone who preaches a different kind of gospel will be called anathema or cursed. And why is that? Because Jesus prayed that there would just be one, that we would be one and to have anything else is wrong. And he continues on. He says, he, he prays that that we would have glory. That we, we would have some of this glory that he has given to us, imparted, or that given to him, imparted to us. Not again as little gods, not sharing his glory in that way, but more of the idea 
that we have this that the world may see, that we are just light bearers so that the world may see the truth of the gospel. I mean, consider that for a minute, what, we, what he's given to us. A Christian should be different from the world because of what has been given to us in Christ. We have the righteousness of Christ, not just good feelings, not just emotions that make us feel good when the music is playing, but there is something different about us that the world will want. Jesus has set us apart to be sanctified in his truth. And lastly, he prays for us that we would be with him. Remember, he says he's going to prepare a place for us. He prays that those whom he plans to die for will be with him. He prays that those whom he has loved from the foundation of the world, those whom the Father has given to him, will be with him. Consider that for a minute. Jesus wants us to be with him. This isn't just that we're some faceless number in the crowd, but he really does want us, you and me, as individuals to be with him. He prayed this to his Father, that it would come to be, that we would be with him. This is an incredible prayer from the one who spoke the stars into existence and who measured the water with his hands. He wants us to be with him in heaven. But what does he want from us first? To finish the work that we've been called to do on the earth. And so in conclusion, consider the things that are prayed here. That he would be glorified. That his word would go out through the disciples. That they would be protected. And that many would come to faith through their words and later see his kingdom come while we wait to be with him. What are these requests? Think about it for a minute. Has Jesus prayed anything new here? Could we not go into the Old Testament and find every single thing that Jesus has prayed for his church? Could we not go in 1 through 16 and see all of these things that he has prayed for his church? These prayers that Jesus is praying for his people are nothing more than the promises of God throughout Scripture. That's what they are. And so... Should we ever be confused on what the Lord desires for us? Should we ever be confused on what His will is for our lives? Should we ever be confused on what to pray for? What does He want us to pray for? He wants us to pray for those things that have been promised to us from the foundation of the earth. He wants us to pray for everything. He wants us to talk to him. He wants us to pray for anything in his name, and he will do it. But again, as Christians, where are we going to see our faith increased? Where are we going to see the power of God go forth? By praying through the promises that he has for his church. If we pray that he'd keep us as his church safe, what is he going to do? He is going to do that absolutely every single time. His church will never die. What if we pray that he'd grow his church? Will he do it? Absolutely. He said he would. What if we pray that he would grow us as his children, that he would sanctify us in the truth? Will he answer that prayer? Absolutely. 
That's what he prayed to his father, that he would do, sanctify us in the truth. When we pray the promises of God, we are praying the very things that he wants for us. That God in the flesh on earth prayed for us when he was there with his friends. And so, brothers and sisters, let us, as his church, never cease to pray these things for each other, for us, and for those who will come after us. We have a very plain picture, I think, of what to pray here. So let us pray for these things. For our own work, for the work of our children one day as they continue the church, that the name of Jesus Christ would go forth into a lost world. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would protect your church. We pray that you would keep us safe in a lost world that hates us. May they not hate us because of what we do. Help us to love them. And help us to preach the message unceasingly, repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to do that. Help us to be faithful with your word, to teach your word as the only means with which to hear the name of Jesus and to find eternal life, that they may know you. And Lord, help us to be one as you and Father are one. Help us to love one another with that kind of love that the world may see and believe. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.